This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the time-sensitive and complex world of early intervention service delivery during the COVID-19 pandemic. Audiologists and speech-language pathologists are navigating a series of challenges when it comes to serving children, birth to three, and their families in early intervention. First, we speak to audiologist Karen Munoz about three COVID-19-related challenges she's hearing from audiologists. We discuss the risk of loss to follow-up, access to ear molds, and the importance of fostering family support and buy-in. Then we speak to SLP Arlene Stradler-Brown for a conversation focused specifically on the use of telepractice in early intervention. We discuss the challenges but also the opportunities of using this type of service delivery. What would be interesting is to see when we go back to a new normal, how many families may opt for telepractice, even if in-person services are an option. Today on the podcast, two experts share their advice on how to navigate early intervention services in the time of COVID-19 and what actions audiologists and SLPs can take. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. The popular ASHA Connect conferences have moved online to keep registrants safe during COVID-19. This online event for SLPs will take place from July 8th through 20th. Register now and save $100. Visit asha.org events connect to learn more. We'll begin the episode with audiologist Karen Munoz. Munoz is a faculty member at Utah State University, where she serves as the head of the Department of Communicative Disorders and Deaf Education. And she also serves as an associate director for the National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management. At the start of our conversation, Munoz identified three common challenges she's hearing from audiologists during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I'm hearing a lot of concerns about access to audiologists during this time. And so parents of kids with hearing loss being able to get services they need is a bit of a problem right now. Uh, Another challenge parents are talking quite a bit about our access to ear molds, getting them replaced because children grow quick is a problem. And then knowing how to support parents and helping them be able to do the things they need to do for their child's hearing loss day to day seems to be getting a little bit lost in the process as well. Okay, so let's start with the first thing you mentioned, which is access to audiologists. Are you hearing that it's more difficult for an audiologist to be able to to be present with the people they serve? Yeah, what's happening is a lot of facilities are closing down or really minimizing what they're doing in response to COVID-19. So One place that we see this is at the very beginning when a child fails their newborn hearing screening at the hospital, oftentimes it's a two-step process where they'll get screened as an inpatient and again as an outpatient. And if they fail both of those, then they go to an audiologist for a diagnostic test, an ABR. And being able to go back to the hospital for an outpatient isn't happening in a lot of places. They're not allowing them to come back for, you know, reasons of the pandemic. And a lot of audiologist offices are closing down. Parents don't have access to the testing either. So the concern is that there's a lot of infants that are needing some services that aren't happening as they typically are. And so state eddy coordinators that are looking at this for all of their states are are really worried about the 
backlog that's going to happen as this continues. Every state has an early hearing detection and intervention program called an EDI program, and they oversee newborn hearing screening and follow-up, and they're watching benchmarks that kids need to have. So screening by one month, diagnostics by three months, and intervention by six months are basically the benchmarks. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has responded to this concern and put a guidance out there saying, you know, that trying to meet the benchmarks as much as possible should be considered essential because that's going to help ensure healthy and appropriate development for children. So this is a a process that's getting disrupted right now with COVID and has the potential to create late identification, loss to follow-up, parents not really knowing what to do or where to go. And what would that mean for these children? Well, the children, if they are born with hearing loss and they're not getting appropriate diagnostics to identify it and the intervention that they get, they can be very delayed in language development over time. If that happens for a few months, they're going to be okay. So let's say a parent is worried with COVID-19, they don't want to go in. That's okay. What we don't want is to lose them to follow up. And if this goes on for a year, 18 months, that child can be severely delayed in their language development. And then there's a whole other other problems, you know, to help intervene for that child and help them. So working through how to keep in touch with families and help move these services along are a challenge right now that everyone needs to be working through. Are there anything audiologists can do right now? Any steps they can take today? Yeah, I've heard of some really creative things that audiologists are doing. Some are offering like drive-up OAE screenings. They can stay in their car. You can do the test while they're asleep. And the otoacoustic emission test or OAE is a real quick portable test. And the audiologist can take it to the car, screen the baby. And if they pass, they're done. The parents don't have anything else they need to do. If the baby fails the screening at that point, then looking at when to get the infant diagnostic test done is really going to be the next step. I've had some other audiologists sharing that they're planning to to expand the when things open up more in their states by offering evening and weekend clinics to try to help meet this backlog demand that's building up in their area. There's steps audiologists could be taking today to prepare for this potential backlog. Absolutely. I think planning for it is a really important step for it, knowing that that these complications are happening and looking at what they can do when restrictions start to lift and people can start to come in more for appointments, what they can do to not have a really long waiting list. Timeliness is important with all aspects of early intervention. So both this access to audiologists, but also the second issue you mentioned, which are ear molds. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges audiologists are facing regarding ear molds? Absolutely. So parents are are really concerned about their, their children being able to get replacement ear molds. What happens with early intervention for kids that are have a hearing loss and are using hearing aids is that they've got to have ear molds that fit and snug in their ear. That's how the sound gets sent into their ear the way that it's supposed to. And as they grow, kids can need ear molds as often as every month in that first year of life. You know, so early intervention up to age three, they're getting ear molds quite frequently during that time just because they're growing. 
we're doing a study right now where we're providing virtual support for parents of kids that are learning how to manage their young child's hearing aids. We actually started it last summer, happened to be still in it. And so we're talking with parents all over the United States that are participating in the study. And I was talking with a father and he was telling me about his young son. And this study involved talking with him every week for six weeks. And each week he would talk about the ear molds getting looser and looser and beginning to feed back. And he was really getting worried about the hearing aids falling out and losing them and the feedback, you know, getting so bad that maybe he can't even put the hearing aids on at all. And what that means is if the child can't wear the hearing aids, they're not accessing sound. And if that's not happening, they're not learning language the way that they need to. So they can become, you know, just get really behind and in that kind of development. Uh, and we're seeing an increased number of children potentially falling behind because they aren't having access to, to getting their ear mold updated. Right. So in talking to audiologists about, you know, like, well, what are we doing? Because this is a problem all over. You know, some audiologists describe, you know, just being a, in a very controlled environment, one parent, the child come in to get that ear, ear mold impression so that they can get the ear molds ordered, reducing the number of people that are, say, in a waiting room or close together. They can really keep that social distancing going and they can control that. But another thing that they are doing is seeing if they can send the ear molds straight, have the company send the ear molds straight to the parents so that that eliminates the visit to fit the new ear mold on their ear. A challenge with that is parents need to then cut the tubing. So a new ear mold comes with this really long tube on it because it needs to be cut specific for each child and their size. And so to respond to that, last week actually, we created a video to teach parents how to cut that tubing and put it up on our heretolearn.org website so that if parents are getting ear molds sent to them, their audiologist could direct them to this video tutorial that shows them how to cut the tubing. And we've got that in English and Spanish to help meet that need. Is it something you feel confident parents can take on? Oh, yeah. You know, it's not uncommon for audiologists to teach parents how to do this. But I think it's more the exception than the rule. And where we're at with things right now, it may need to be what's more commonly done versus the exception. This kind of is the perfect lead into the third thing that we're going to talk about, which is parental support. Because you have to have buy-in to have the parents willing to cut the tubing or, or to provide that type of support. So let's talk now. What is the other challenge that you're hearing about um, regarding parental support? One of the things I'm hearing quite a bit about um, from parents and, and also parent support organizations is that parents are really feeling isolated right now. We've got a lot of parents, especially those that are newer to their child's hearing loss, feeling really uncertain about what they're doing. And um, so I've I've talked to some audiologists finding out what they're doing, and and it really varies across the country, but some audiologists are calling those families and checking on them, seeing how it's going, using video conferencing to, to help them with what they're going through, teaching them things, um, also sending them online resources. But that's not happening everywhere. One thing I think audiologists can do is reach out to their state eddy program or their Hands and Voices chapter and find out what is happening in their state to help get parents connected. Are you also hearing other services that are perhaps being delayed, such as cochlear implant surgeries? 
I have heard a number of people talking about their child was scheduled for surgery to get cochlear implants, and then the pandemic came, and that is a surgery that is being delayed. So there are parents that are waiting to see when their child can get their surgery and uncertain when that's going to happen. And that's difficult for parents because that means their child is waiting longer for the sufficient and appropriate access to sound that they need to develop spoken language. So it sounds like, Karen, this is kind of just chapter one, and there could be a potential backlog of of services that need to be addressed, and so there will be more on this later. There will, and, you know, as this unfolds and as we go forward, you know, we don't know what types of challenges are going to continue or show up. And so I think thinking in a flexible manner about how do we help meet these needs and how do we meet them in a way that each parent is ready for. Karen, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Visit ASHA.org to find the latest setting-specific COVID-19 updates and resources, including an audiology virtual town hall featuring ASHA Voices guest Karen Munoz. Find it all by going to ASHA.org and using the COVID-19 updates banner to navigate to the information you need. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from an SLP who has almost 20 years of experience with telepractice in early intervention. She shares advice and considerations for getting the most out of this service delivery format. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. Schools Connect, Healthcare Connect, and Private Practice Connect are happening in one online space from July 8th through 20th. Join for a curated and comprehensive learning experience for SLPs and earn plenty of ASHA CEUs. Go to asha.org events connect to learn more and save $100. Arlene Stradler-Brown has almost 20 years of experience with telepractice in early intervention. Stradler-Brown is an SLP, and she works as a clinical faculty member at the University of Colorado and as an adjunct faculty member at the University of British Columbia. She's also a coordinator for the Colorado Early Hearing Detection and Intervention Alliance. Because of her experience and expertise, I asked Stradler-Brown to join me for a conversation about the opportunities and challenges telepractice provides for early intervention services. Beginning with opportunities, Stradler-Brown mentioned that telepractice is allowing for continued services at a time when otherwise services might stop. And just as Munoz noted, Stradler-Brown also mentioned the opportunity to employ a family-centered or coaching approach. Because of the need for strong parental support and buy-in for this service delivery format, I asked Stradler-Brown how parents view telepractice. Parents, in my experience, are all over the board. Uh, Some embrace it. People in rural areas are more likely to embrace it. But because of our reaction to COVID-19, people everywhere uh, have the opportunity. Before the COVID-19 pandemic impacted our service delivery, I'd say some people were more cautious. They saw telepractice as being less than some interventionists, some SLPs felt that way. Service coordinators with Part C, according to one study, very much felt that telepractice couldn't measure up to in-person services. And I think parents were influenced by the professionals in their lives, by the 
therapist's willingness or the service coordinator for the little one's willingness to endorse telepractice. But now things have really shifted. And by and large, people are saying they would rather get services this way than not have services at all. What would be interesting is to see when we go back to a new normal, how many families may opt for telepractice, even if in-person services are an option. Are you suggesting that maybe this will change some of the public perception of telepractice? I am suggesting that, and I'm suggesting that because people who did telepractice even before the COVID-19 issue usually said it was a little odd at first and I got used to it. And many interventionists said, I am coaching way more than I was coaching in in in-person sessions. And they have almost all reported that they will coach more now in the in-person condition because they appreciate what the strategies are that help parents. So I think that we're going to see the same, even though many people were kind of forced into telepractice instead of choosing to work into it gradually. One thing I think that's interesting is that you mentioned that telepractice can lead to more coaching. And I'm wondering, what is it about telepractice? What is it about that format that creates this opportunity? So I often saw therapy in the in-person condition where, yeah, you were in the home, but maybe you brought a toy bag with you. And sometimes a parent, when I arrived at the house, would say, oh, I'm so glad you're here because... I'm just going to run to the other room and do the laundry. And I'd say, well, how about if you and your child and I all go together to do the laundry? Because that's a typical routine. And we can teach children language and some cognitive skills and speech and listening activities for kids who are deaf or hard of hearing while a parent is doing something they do every week, folding the laundry or putting the laundry in the washing machine. So that's part of it, is that you really do implement what has been talked about that's family-centered and using typical routines and props in the home. But I'm going to take it one step farther, and that's when you decide to work on a strategy. And there's a process to that where the SLP comes with some ideas and the parents have some ideas. And Once you agree on a strategy, then you teach it. And the teaching kind of has five steps to it. You explain what the strategy is. The SLP models it. Then you talk with the parent about how that worked for your child. Then the parent does it. And then after a little bit of time, you stop again and SLP and parent or parents talk about How did that feel to you, to the parent, implementing that strategy? You also talked about if you're in person, you might say, oh, you're doing the laundry. Let's go and we'll use language to talk about folding the clothes. But in telepractice, it might be difficult to to go from room to room in that way. So what would you suggest? How can you incorporate the family and everyday activities in front of a, a screen? Back in the early 2000s, We did not have devices that you could move easily from room to room, but we do now. I'm not going to recommend doing telepractice on a phone, but I've done it when that's the best way to connect or the only device a family has. 
but an iPad or any kind of notepad, a laptop are very easy to carry around. And parents take them outside and they take them into different rooms in the house. So moving from room to room really is not that much of a challenge in 2020 because our devices allow us to do that and we have good video and audio capabilities on our devices. Even though external mics might help, we do have pretty good access. So I think you can move from room to room really quite easily. Another thing I've heard from a few different places are the use of recordings, right? That this might be an opportunity to capture a child in an everyday activity or in a moment that maybe the parents have a question about or that they'd like for you to see. Can you tell me a little bit about how to incorporate recordings? Sure. Recordings used to be a problem for programs because of privacy issues. So for starters, you need to be using a software platform that is HIPAA compliant. That said, some programs still feel that there are privacy issues, and Colorado's Part C program has the parents sign uh, some paperwork about whether to allow recordings or not. We also have providers who might be sensitive to whether they want to be recorded or not. But let's assume a recording is okay and that you've managed your privacy issues and met the standard that needs to be met. I think recordings often are just the push of a button. And there's so much value in it because both parents and SLP can benefit Parents can benefit because if you share the recording with them, the parent who was present or parents who were present can review a session and watch themselves and watch their child and see what worked. In addition, if one parent's home and the other parent isn't, or parents are home and grandparents are involved in the child's life but not present, you can show them the session. And rather than give an abbreviated representation of what happened in an hour, someone can sit and watch it and fast forward through parts of it and actually learn secondhand things that they can do with the child. Now, how does it benefit the SLP? And I have the students that I work with in our clinic at CU doing this all the time, which is watch your recorded session. It's such a good way to watch yourself as a practitioner. It's a great way to watch the child, to collect data, to watch the parent to look at what worked, to look at what you would do differently. So recordings, as long as you've gotten the okay to do it, are easy and so helpful to the family and the SLP, in my opinion. So we've talked a lot about opportunities, but I mentioned earlier I wanted to talk about the challenges that telepractice can present as well. So I was wondering if you could tell me a few of the main challenges that you've found through telepractice and and maybe some ways to approach those challenges. The biggest challenge was also the biggest opportunity, and that's your familiarity with coaching. If you're coaching in the in-person condition, the switch to telehealth is simple. I was just talking with a colleague earlier today in Florida who said, and I totally agree, that if you thought you were coaching, but you really weren't, if you thought you were teaching the parents' strategies, but really you kind of got involved in just doing the work with the child because you were engaged, the child was doing well, and you never turned it over to the parents to try to implement the strategy, 
if that's your model of intervention in the in-person condition, you're going to run into a lot of surprises in the telepractice condition. So what to do about that? Reach out to your professional organization like ASHA or ECTAC, the Early Childhood Technical Assistance Program, or in my world, working with the birth to three population that's deaf or hard of hearing. The infanthearing.org website is excellent. They have modules about telepractice. Uh, You can reach out to your state Part C organization for information. And I'd also suggest that you find somebody who's done telepractice. And just in an informal way, that can be your mentor. You can also find many resources and updates specifically for early intervention during the COVID-19 pandemic at ASHA.org. Near the end of our conversation, Stradler Brown outlines the challenges technology can create from lack of equipment to poor internet bandwidth. She says she thinks some families may need to borrow devices to receive telepractice services and suggests checking with your state to see if they have any available. ASHA recommends doing a test run before connecting for a telepractice session. As for issues with signal, Stradler Brown says it's important to have a plan in place before the signal is interrupted. She suggests preparing to pause and wait for the signal to clear up or disconnecting and reconnecting if needed. As a backup, Stradler Brown recommends having a phone nearby to call your client if the signal is too unstable to rely upon. I asked Stradler Brown one final question about working with families during a pandemic at a time when people's lives have been flipped upside down. I asked her what thoughts she has on how to interact with the families at this highly emotional time. That's a great question. A lot of what we've talked about is coaching in the context of family-centered early intervention. But family-centered early intervention by nature, by definition, is more than just coaching. The coaching is the part of a session when you're teaching parents how to implement strategies. But in addition to coaching, a family-centered session is a time when the interventionist offers information, answers parents' questions, and provides emotional support. Now, that emotional support is a very focused type of support around the child's disability or around the fears. Hearing the parent and using some strategies that are very soft counseling strategies that I think we're all trained in in our graduate programs. Being a sounding board for parents, giving affirmation that you heard what they said, commenting on their emotions. That's part of family-centered work because families of little ones are usually a little upset that their children have a condition they didn't anticipate. So, There's wonderful resources available that talk about how to engage with parents, just being a good listener or grandparents, aunts and uncles, who will sometimes join these sessions, especially now when lots of people are at home. And I leave time in every session to do a check-in to say, how you doing? How are things since last week? How did it go with the work that we did last week? Anything new? that you want to talk about, it's an absolutely legitimate welcome part of the intervention and easily transferred to the telepractice condition. Arlene Stradler-Brown, thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure. Do you have more questions about early intervention during the COVID-19 pandemic? 
go to asha.org and look for the COVID-19 updates banner. From there, you can find setting-specific resources, including a list of resources that are specifically for early intervention. You'll be able to find a web series that features recorded panel discussions, including one focused on telepractice evaluation and assessment, featuring Arlene Stradler-Brown. We'll also share a link to these conversations on the blog post for this episode. You can find that at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA Professional Development. Register now for ASHA's Connect online conferences for SLPs, which will take place from July 8th through 20th. Save $100 off the regular rate. Go to asha.org events connect to learn more. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.